Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. I think having a portfolio career sounds fantastic. In my head, it means a little bit of highly paid, interesting work, a bit of gardening, and maybe some not-for-profit work, just to round out the week. In this episode, I meet someone who has carved out a portfolio career and discuss how to do it, including when you should start planning for it. Shirley Chowdhury is a leader with a diverse set of credentials across Indigenous education, law, financial services, funds management, journalism, and the NFP sector. She was also the inaugural leader of the Go Foundation. In this episode, she talks about carving out a portfolio career, but also how she took a 10-year career break. Before I start, I apologise for the audio. There was an unfolding emergency in Sydney, and you may hear sirens. Shirley, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I'm really interested to know how you break up your week, how you fit in all your various roles into a working week. Thanks, Helen. It's lovely to be here. You know, I think there are some mainstays of my weeks, board meetings, advisory board meetings, meetings with CEOs or executives. They kind of are standard, and I know those a year or two in advance, and everything else just gets slotted around them. Last week, I found that I only had one meeting in the diary, so I took it off. I'm sure everyone listening to this now is suddenly jealous of your life. Yes, look, but the (laughs) other side is that I don't have four weeks a year or six weeks a year of leave. Somebody told me years ago that directors are always on. And so you are, you're always on. And so you have to take those bits and pieces off where you can. Tell me exactly what work you're doing at the moment. So I'm running a portfolio and what I've discovered is that means I can run whatever I want to run in my work week. I don't have to just sit on boards or I don't have to just speak. So I sit on three boards. I sit on two advisory boards and I run around the country and pray that people turn up to hear me speak on different topics. Uh, And then I fill the gaps if there are gaps with consulting. How long did it take you to achieve that lovely balance between the various roles? Was it something you set out to do some time ago or was it a bit more accidental? I'm 55. I've been working for 29 years, so I'd say 29 years. I never set out to have a portfolio. I was a CEO before this of the Go Foundation and I just assumed I would go on to another CEO role. But CEO roles are such that when you're ready to take one on or you're looking for the next one, you're at the mercy of what's available. And I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to work with sick children or mental health or suicide prevention or any of those things. I loved the role at Go, but it took a mental toll as well, an emotional toll. And so I wanted to work with a business association that wasn't available. And so whilst I was taking some time out to think about what was next, 
a consulting role came to me and then a board role came to me. And it's just, I've kind of fallen into it. I never planned it. So let's talk about that period of time when you're between jobs because mm. the audience of this podcast are young women you know, right in the thick of their career advancement. And I know many of them listening today will be thinking, I would love a portfolio career. Mm. So keen to explore how you managed it. But was there a period where you were a bit fearful? You've stopped and the roles aren't turning up or the right ones aren't turning up. Did you have that? <gasps> what do I day, do next? Every day. Right. Like, so I left go, had no idea what I was doing. I was the main breadwinner in our family. My husband uh, was the one who was staying at home with the kids to look after them. He was the main caregiver. And if I didn't bring in a certain amount of money each month, we were in trouble. But you know, I've also had this belief over the last few years that I say yes to everything unless there's a reason to say no. And I think that actually propelled me into things that I would never have done. And, you know, I knew that I could consult if I needed to. I had people coming to me saying, look, you just finished that role. Would you do some consulting? Or, And I think we talk often about women heading into portfolio careers, but we tend to tell them that they should be on boards. I don't think that's fair. I think if women want portfolio careers, we should absolutely encourage them to do it. But you can build the portfolio of work that you want. You know, if you need two days of part-time work to give you some financial stability, do that. And then look at what you can do with the rest of your time or do three days of part-time work. You find the balance that's right for you. I've been really, really lucky in how this has all played out. But it is fearful. It's really, really scary. And a noteworthy director told me as I was embarking on this journey she said, you need to have some financial independence because if you're on boards and something happens, you don't have the ability to walk away if you don't have that financial independence. And I've always thought that that was really great advice. So you do public speaking. People pay you to come and give a talk. How did you fall into that? A good friend of mine, actually, Kirsten Ferguson, said to me, and, you know, she's a great mentor for so many women, um, she was the one who, when I left Go, said, you should do some speaking. And I said, who would turn up to listen? And she introduced me to the Speakers Bureau, and they've been amazing. Kirsten Ferguson is a, a podcast guest. In fact, I caught up with her last week. Yeah, and, she's um, pretty fabulous. She is pretty fabulous. Yeah. Do you, did you, was there a period of time where, again, I'm, I'm thinking about the audience, who thinks, oh, that's, you know, public speaking thing sounds great in theory, but it's actually terrifying. Yeah. Did you, did you have to overcome... The, the fear of speaking publicly or have you just always quite enjoyed it? Well, I was a lawyer in my previous life for a long time and lawyers are often asked to speak in a room or speak in front of people. And so I'd been used to public speaking. I didn't find it terrifying, but I got butterflies and, you know, felt sick in the stomach every time I was going up on stage. And I think what tends to happen is you come to know your subject matter so well and you're speaking about similar topics all the time and tweaking them for the audience and for the client but the more you do something, the more comfortable you become with something, the easier it is. So I still get nervous when I go up on stage to speak, but my nerves show up in a different way. I have an incredible need to go to the bathroom just before <laughs> I go on stage. And so I, you know, I go to the bathroom before that. And, and so I know it's more mental than physical. 
And when I'm up there, I get very dry in my mouth. So I always make sure I have water um, and my legs shake. If you look at me when I'm speaking, one of my legs will always be shaking generally, but it doesn't come through in my voice. It sounds like torture. Yeah, look, I actually really love it. I get to meet great people and I get to talk about topics that I am passionate about, that I really love. And I'm really fortunate people still turn up to listen. (laughs) One day they won't, but uh, at the moment I really love it. My colleague Jamila Rizmi says it's, it takes as much energy to be nervous as it does to be excited. Yeah. And so um, she channels nerves into excitement. Yeah, it's great advice. I always tell people if they're going up to public speak and they're really worried about it, practice, 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 practice till you almost know what word's coming next. So write it down, practice your heart out in front of the mirror so you can see how you're responding to the words And then when you've practised that much and you've video recorded it and you've heard yourself, you can adjust it. And then when you get up there, it's almost like they could throw anything at you and you can get through it. Let's talk about leadership. And you've had multiple leadership roles. You talk about the Go Foundation. How would you describe your leadership style? I think it's changed over the years. Now I'd like to think that I am collaborative and always learning I make 100 mistakes every day and that's before I get up. So I'd like to think it's iterative. I used to tell people when I hired them that if they were going to work with me, they needed to have enough strength to be able to challenge me because I'm loud, I'm confident, I'm not scared of speaking up. And so if they can't challenge me, that's a problem. So I need people around me who are going to challenge me. Really? Does that that work in practice? I mean, I know it sounds good in theory, but, you know, I'm like... Yes, I, I think challenge is good, but I'm, I'm in a hurry to get things done. So yeah, look, my biggest, with me. my biggest fault is I race at a million miles per hour mm. and I have to remind myself to slow down and take other people with me on the journey. That's always been the biggest criticism and, and I know that, I see that. But my ideas are never the best ones on the table, ever. And there's nothing more satisfying than getting people around brainstorming an idea And it might have been a nugget of my idea or somebody else's, but then where you end up is always so much better. And I I think that doesn't mean that you don't make captain's calls sometimes. I'm not in the position at the moment where I need to make captain's calls, but, yeah, I need reminding sometimes, but I think we end up with a better process. What leaders do you admire? That's a really good question, actually. So many. You know, maybe I can, rather than giving you names, maybe I can answer that slightly differently. I used to think that leaders who had, you know, who we read about and talked about and were in the papers all the time and that they were always going to be the best leaders. And I found over the years that often it's the ones without the titles, the ones, people, women often sitting in a room doing the work, leading quietly that are the most impressive. And I'm not a quiet person, so I tend to, (laughs) I look at that and I think that's pretty amazing. I don't think we need a title to be a leader. And I think we still operate in society as though we do need a title to be a leader. Have you ever been challenged by your gender as a leader? Oh, a million times. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in Asia for 10 years during the 90s. And, you know, it was the bubble and the heyday of kind of mergers and acquisitions and project finance and all of that sort of stuff. And working in Asia was challenging during that time. Lots of overt sexual harassment and I worked for an organisation here in Australia where the leaders in the, that part of the organisation only promoted leaders who were in their image and they were all grey-haired white men. And so that was challenging. 
Oh, look, it happens all the time. And unfortunately, I think it still happens. We still do it. And I think one of the things that we need to get better at is recognising leadership in all its guises. You know, leadership doesn't... We've been trained to think that leadership walks through the door and is loud and confident and articulate and speaks with, you know, no accent and is sophisticated and backs themselves in their ideas. I think I've been involved in some leadership awards and what I've discovered is leadership can be shy and introverted and quiet and not confident. It can speak with an accent. It can come in the form of a woman who's four foot five tall and, you know, we need to get better at looking at leadership in all those guises. You actually hosted a leadership podcast yourself. Any advice for me? Oh, hardly. <laughs> hardly. It's like, oh, damn, she no, hosted no. her own leadership um, podcast. I loved that. Well, it was one of the examples, actually, of something where I, it wasn't even on a bucket list. I would never in a million years have thought of myself hosting a podcast. But I said yes, because there was no reason to say no. And I loved it. I just got to meet all these incredible women doing incredible things. And it was just like a conversation. It is interesting to me how much scope there is in the leadership subject line. It touches so many aspects of everyday life. And to your point, it's not necessarily the person who's running the biggest budget or the biggest um, number of staff. It can be very small. Mm. It can be a very small team. I think women too need to get better at backing themselves as leaders We need to get out of our own skin to understand that if we don't have the title or we're not leading the team or we're not running massive budgets, we can still be leaders. People aren't going to believe in us if we don't believe in ourselves often. Yeah, the thing that I I, I think looking at your bio is that you've been really good at telling your story. And I think that's something that many women are not good at is telling their story Did you learn that by working on it or did you have a natural capacity for communicating? I think there's probably a little bit of both. One of my mentors told me that we need to all tell our story. We need to be able to tell our narrative. But she shared something which I think is really important for all of us to remember. You don't have to share everything. There are parts of my story that are incredibly private that I won't share publicly but I've decided that there are parts of my story that I am willing to share. And then you create the narrative using those parts and do it in a way that you are quite comfortable. So, for example, until very recently, I didn't share with anybody that I had a 10-year career break. I kept it quite secret. There was a lot of shame attached to it because I think when I was looking for roles, headhunters at the beginning would often say, yeah, but you had 10 years off. And I came back into the workplace because people recognised I had this blue chip overseas experience, so there must be something of value there. So I came back into the workforce 13 and a half years ago, but it's taken me that whole time to be able to own that career break and to be able to say publicly that I took that time off to stay with my children. And I did lots of things. I volunteered and I sat on management teams for -for not-for-profits and I wrote a biography. I kept busy and did stuff. But I wasn't in the traditional workforce and now I'm really comfortable with it and so I can talk about it and I use it as a way to encourage other women to either have a break if that's what they want to do and can do, it was a very privileged position, or stay in the workforce in whatever way they want to, whether it's part-time work or 
you know, on a not-for-profit team or whatever it is, now I'm not ashamed of it. I'm really proud that I'm doing what I'm doing now given I had a 10-year career break. Shelley, we work with um, hundreds of women on the Future Women Jobs Academy Mm. and I think this is probably the issue that we get asked the most is how to characterise a career break and whether employers are okay with it. So I'll ask you those questions separately. Well, what is your advice to a woman who's had a career break today? How should they capture it in their CV or on their LinkedIn profile? Lucy Turnbull said to me once, she said, women who stay at home with their kids have skills that we just don't talk about. You know, project management skills. There's nothing worse than on a Friday night sitting down with three children's sports timetables for the weekend and birthday party timetables and trying to work out how, as one parent or two parents, you're going to get across all of those things with all of those children in a hundred different directions. They're skills. They're skills that we build during that period that we have off. So I think identifying what those skills are that you've built and being able to talk about them in professional work terms, I think is the first thing. Deciding what your narrative is. When I had that 10-year career break, I did lots of things. And so I got to the point where I put them on my CV. And some of them were not for profit, some of them were volunteer, but I put them on my CV so I could talk about that time off. The other thing I would say is if you are having a career break, have a career break spend time with your children or for your mental health or whatever it is. But if you are thinking about coming back, think about how you can keep your hand in. You know, is it one day a week? Is it one day a fortnight? Is it volunteering? Whatever works for you. But I think that's also important. I took a career break and I think I was, after the first year or two, I was so scared of coming back in. And that fear just grows and grows and grows and then it's almost insurmountable. So I think we need to support women and men who want career breaks. My husband took 10 years to look after the kids at home. And in some ways, I think it's harder for men coming back than women. We make it harder for them because what's wrong with you if you're a man and you want a career break? Do you think women today still feel that shame? Oh, yes, absolutely. And every time I talk about it with an audience... Every time women put their hands up, sometimes in tears, saying, we need to talk about it more. And what about finding that confidence to go back into the workplace? What advice do you have? Go and talk to other women. You know, between the time you decide to come back and the time you'll get a job, it took me six or seven months. It could take longer. Go and talk to people. Go and have conversations with people and let them know what you want and what you're thinking and start to meet people out there again because that can also build your confidence. And I think other people see things in us that we're not capable of seeing in ourselves sometimes or they articulate it back to you differently. And I was the recipient of some wonderful mentoring and sponsorship and where people saw things in me. So I think that's really, really important putting yourself out there. We're not really good at telling people what we want often. Often we'll have an idea in our head and then when it doesn't pan out that way, we get upset. But we haven't told anybody that that was our idea. Couldn't agree more. It's something that comes up quite often. And I often say to young women, just if you've got a plan, like you know what you want, yeah. just tell me. Articulate because it. Because I might not be able to do it this week or next week or even a year's time, but it, it sits in the, exactly. the, the mind of your boss and eventually... Exactly. And also, you know, it may not work out the way you planned it, but somebody might see something else in that idea and it may lead to something. Let's talk about the employer then. 
are you seeing improvements in terms of the way employers see career breaks? I think so. Employers aren't the problem. Often I think it's the headhunters and the recruiters who are the biggest issue and not all recruiters and headhunters. There are some really fabulous ones out there. So there are now I know that there are some companies who have return to work programs. Mm -hmm. So if you've had time off, look for those programs where they actively seek out men and women who've had career breaks because they see value in the skills you've learned and the skills you had before that. The other thing employers are doing is they're making workplace policies better. You know, I talk to so many female founders and leaders who now have parental leave policies that are so much broader in scope, you know, Mm. stillbirth, miscarriage, adoption, surrogacy. The workplace is kinder now to women. Other organisations have menopause leave and period leave. And God, when I was going through menopause, I would have died for some menopause leave. (laughs) You know, working in a bank with men everywhere. Um, So I think we are getting more inclusive. Employers are getting more inclusive. And honestly, if your employer isn't inclusive and doesn't think like that, and you're being made to feel guilty for a career break or shamed for a career break, look for someone else. There are employers out there who are much more inclusive and think with their hearts about the breaks that men and women have to take in their careers for a whole variety of reasons. My final question on this is, how upfront should you be? took me 13 years, so I'm probably not the best person (laughs) to ask. I guess I'm just sort of hitting that tone, right? Because you said, yes, well, I've got all these extra skills. Mm. And I agree, you're probably doing volunteer work or Mm. activities in the community that are particularly valid, but it's not, it's striking that balance between not hiding it, mm. being pretty upfront, but not very apologetic about it either. I think it's hard to hide it, right? You've, if you've had a two-year career break or a three-year or a 10-year career break, it's on your, like there's a gap mm. on your resume. I don't explain my gaps anymore. I've got three children, so I've got gaps for them. But at the time when I came back, I was asked so often, like I think, Recruiters and headhunters need to take a good, long, long, hard look at themselves and at the questions they're asking. You know, oh, did you have a baby there? Or, oh, what was that career break? Like, we need to move past that and look at the value that sits on that CV outside of those career breaks. Let's talk about confidence then. Mm. What did it look like when you walked back into your first role? Zero confidence. Zero. And, you know, on one hand, I'd been regional council for a big investment bank in Asia. So I knew that I was capable of more, but I started right at the bottom. So I came back in after a 10-year break, started right at the bottom in a legal team, and I knew I could do more. But I think confidence comes from, you know, baby steps, little achievements, and you start working with people who see something in you again. And it took me four years to build that confidence back up. But it does come. It does come surround yourself with good people. That is my lifelong work lesson. If you work with great people, they will see value in you and it won't matter what your title is. It won't matter what job you've been hired to do. The scope will increase. They'll want to give you more. When you work with narcissistic sociopaths, as we've all done, they try and put you in a box. And so find your people. You spent four years at the Go Foundation, which is the work of Michael O'Loughlin and Adam Goods. Tell us me a little bit about that work and how you became a lifelong campaigner for reconciliation. 
I was always a supporter of reconciliation. My first part-time job after, well, during uni was at the Redfern Legal Centre and then I was on the management team at the Redfern Legal Centre. So that was back when I was at uni and had just left. And then I went overseas, so there was no scope for that. So we have in this country the benefit of the oldest living, surviving culture in the world. It's older than 60,000 years old. And we have squandered that history and heritage and pillaged it and done so much wrong. I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart is an invitation from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to all Australians to walk with them towards a path of reconciliation. I think that's really, really important. So for listeners out there, if they haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to read it, especially in this, the year of the referendum. I wanted to run a P&L. That was why I was looking for a CEO role. And I was really lucky that the board had a number of people who were ex-lawyers. And so they didn't have that same block that I couldn't transfer my skills and go. So while we were there, I think the everything grew, the revenue, the students, the scholarships. It was all about providing holistic scholarships with cultural mentoring at the base and then aspirations, opportunities and financial assistance to Indigenous students from kindergarten right through to PhD level. It was an incredible four and a half years. Can you identify a time when your leadership was challenged? (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Leadership should be challenged. You know, I first became a, a leader with a title when I was 30. I was managing a group of 10 lawyers and compliance people in Asia. And I think my view, I look back on that period with a bit of disgust, really, for my own leadership. I don't think... I was 30. It was all about me. I don't think I really understood that servant leadership is the best kind of leadership where you are stretching and growing other people. Um, It was really about how I came out looking through that. And now um, I have a very different view of leadership. So I think, you know, we, we should be challenging leadership all the time. We should be stretching leadership and pulling it apart and asking questions and you know, if we think our leaders are doing the wrong thing, whether it's politicians or people we work for, we should be saying things. I think that is good challenge. You know, that's the sort of challenge that we all thrive on and we need feedback and we need that to grow. I think what you're talking about probably is um, not that kind of good challenge. It's where either it's toxic challenge, and I've had lots of those, often sadly from women I've worked with. In my career, men have been incredibly supportive What's that about? I don't know. You know, Madeleine Albright said that there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women and I've reserved a few places down there for some of the women I've worked (laughs) with. uh, Look, I don't know. I think there's a feeling um, among some women that they did it tough and nobody gave them a hand, so other women need to do it tough. I don't know, maybe they were threatened. Maybe I thought I was better than I was. You know, it could be a million things, but... I what think, did you learn from that, do you think? Oh, I think you learn more from the bad leaders yeah. than you do from the good ones. I, yeah, learned, I, I mean, I had, I've had experience with male leaders and I've gone, there is no way I want to do it that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I think you learn more from those people because you can see I'm working with a chair at the moment who is just outstanding. I think he's one of the best chairs I've ever worked with. And so I can see behaviours and things that he does that I want to emulate in my leadership but the, the bad leaders I've worked with, there's a laundry list of things that I will never do because I know what it feels like to be subject to that behaviour or subject to that kind of toxic challenge where 
you know, you deeply know something is the right thing to do or the right thing to say, but for a whole host of reasons, I think ego often plays into it too, you know. Our egos clash for whatever reason and... So hard to identify in the moment though, isn't it? So hard. That that it's the ego that's kicked in? So hard and I would spend endless, you know, thinking back to those times where it's been really, really awful. I go home and I spend days on the floor crying, you know, because I... You know, feedback is, we all need feedback to grow. But one of my mentors told me once that you need to look at where feedback's coming from and the objectivity and the love with which feedback is given and then choose which parts you want to take on and don't take on. I think, I think yeah, I think you're right. Shelley, it sounds like there's something absolutely catastrophic happening outside our um, podcast studio. So in summary... What advice do you have to young female leaders? Back yourself. Go for it. You know deep down that you're capable of great things and that you have a talent in something. Put yourself out there. Tell people what you see for yourself. Go and talk to lots of people. I don't know a woman that won't accept a phone call or a coffee or something to have a chat. Go and talk to people and learn what's out there and how you can grow your career. And good luck. Get a mentor, a sponsor. Get a mentor, get a sponsor. And Wendy McCarthy said to me once, she said, there aren't many women who won't have a chat. So go looking for them on LinkedIn and go and follow people and have conversations on social as well with people you want to have conversations with. Absolutely. I'm just recalling all the times I've forgotten. Yes, you can have a coffee with you and then I go, oh, did I get back to you? You know, (laughs) yes, I'll have a coffee. Oh, I do that as well. Shelley Chowdhury, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Helen. For coming in to chat to me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 